Hear this word from the Lord and rest in this marvelous truth. It comes to us from Psalm 103. It says this, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions from us. It's an immeasurable distance. The work of Christ is effective Believe the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Amen? Would you sit as we prepare for our message this morning? Good morning, everyone. Good morning. For those I haven't met, my name is Adam Brago, and I have the privilege of serving as an elder on staff here at Missio. And I'm humbled and honored to open God's Word with you this morning. So if you would, if you brought a copy of the Scriptures or if you have one on a device, please turn with me to Psalm 25. If you don't have a copy, it'll be up on the screen and you can follow along as I read. But just appreciate the opportunity to open the Scriptures. It is the Word of the true and living God. It is useful for teaching and rebuking and training and correcting, equipping us for every good work. And so we are so thankful that our God has revealed himself to us in his word. We, uh, feels like a decade ago, but we started a series going through the Psalms and then we took a break when a few little things happened in March and now we're picking back up in the Psalms and so here we are in Psalm 25. This is the word of the Lord. Of David, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble, 
and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Let's pray. God, we look to you this morning, our creator, our king, our savior. We turn our attention to your words and ask that you would teach us, that your spirit would guide us, lead us, make known to us your ways, teach us your paths. God, we want to be your people, obedient to your commands, submissive to your will, honoring you with our lives, that you would be made much of. And so we give you this time in your name. Amen. Amen. So David begins, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. This prayer, these words set a very clear tone for this psalm. They indicate a very clear objective. Here I am. My life is in your hands. My future is in your hands. I'm trusting you with all of me. Right? Verses 1 and 2, he's saying, I trust you with my life. Why? Because he says in verse 3, because I know that you are trustworthy. And so he cries out to him in verses 4 and 5, teach me, lead me. God, I'm waiting on you. And so these first kind of five verses summarize for us this prayer and his desire as he's approaching the Lord. Now let me ask you, if if we had to do a survey, I just wonder how many of us this morning feel like we've got things totally under control? It's all good, no problem, right? School, no problem. Work, I've got this. Parenting, piece of cake. Marriage, relationships, all under control. Things are good. I think most of us, maybe all of us, would say not even close. And yet, how often do we pray along these lines to you, Lord? I lift my soul in you I'm trusting. How much of our time do we spend, right, myself included, in worry or stress or fear or frustration or impatience, right, reflecting the very opposite? We, we really don't feel as though we've got things under control. And the older we get and the more trials we face, the more suffering we experience or observe others experiencing, right, the easier it is to admit right, that we don't have things under control. And yet sometimes we act as if just maybe through our own efforts, I might be able to get this thing under control. So what freedom and relief if we can 
sit here this morning and say, nope, I don't have things under control. What freedom do we find in the scriptures to cry out with David, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, and O my God, in you I trust. What relief is there in that prayer, in this song? Life's tough. And based on what David writes, he seems to be writing this later in life as he talks about his youth. And he knows this very well. But we don't often wait on the Lord. Why? Why is that? Because we forget that he really is trustworthy. And so we try each day to kind of pick up, collect our own burdens and scrape and scrap through another day. But this psalm, I think, reflects for us a different path, a much-needed path, a path of wisdom and of blessing. If you remember back to Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. It describes this man who, who's walking this path. Well, this psalm, to me, is a, it's a prayer by that man later on in life, right, where he's been beaten up. His enemies surround him. He, he recognizes the struggle within him with his own sin. And this is his prayer. It's a prayer of pursuing and seeking guidance from the Lord. Because he's persuaded, he's convinced of God's character and because he rightly perceives his own need. And that's what I I hope we'll see this morning, that this is a prayer of a man seeking God's guidance for two reasons. One, because he is persuaded of God's character. He's convinced of who God is. And two, because he rightly perceives his own need. And so we have, he gives us some of the reason why he's turning to the Lord. He gives us some of the context of what is going on. In verse 11, he's, he's struggling with the guilt of his own sin. In verse 16, he describes himself as being lonely and afflicted. In 17, he's troubled and distressed. 18, he's afflicted and troubled and burdened again by his sin. And so that's kind of what's going on in his life. And basically, it's as if he's saying, what's, what's, a, what's going on around me is so hard and so overwhelming. And what's going on inside me is really not so good. I don't know the best way forward, so Lord, please guide me. Please direct me. Please teach me. That's the focus of this prayer. That's his request of God. It's a prayer pursuing guidance. Again, if if we look back, we'll start kind of walk through these verses. One through three, his declaration there is, I am trusting you because you are trustworthy, right? That's his declaration to God. I'm trusting you with my life because I'm convinced, God, that you are trustworthy. And that's followed by, in four and five, this, this request of please guide me. Make me to know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truths. 
teach me. Right? Crying out to God for his guidance. So let me ask you a question. Do you believe right, that God guides us? Do you believe that he guides us? Or right, do you struggle because perhaps since you can't see him in the same way that you can see me standing up here in front of you, right, do you fall into the trap of thinking, well, God is one who, who maybe who gives sort of subtle hints along the way. Right? It's, it's on me to kind of chart the path, make the course here, and along the way, God will, will nudge if I get off path. He'll give me some hints. Right? But this, this, song, this is a prayer by one who believes that God guides. Teach me. Lead me. Right? Believing that God is very active in guiding him. And so this is a, a life of faith and dependence. The other thinking that maybe God just sort of nudges us along the way is one of proving myself to him with him giving little assist along the way. One is a, a big view of God and a small view of myself. The other is a big view of myself and a small view of God. Right? Because behind these prayers of seeking God in this way is a view of God that he is in charge. And that there's faith that he is going to lead me. The second question really is, well, we, we believe that God guides. Here, clearly the psalmist is convinced that God guides. How does he do that? How is it that God leads us in this life? And this psalm, I think, answers a better question. Rather than how does God lead us, it answers the question, whom does God lead? And the answer, as I said, is one who's persuaded of God's character and who rightly perceives his own need. That's why he prays here in these first five verses, essentially, God, you lead, I'll wait. He knows who God is. He knows his own needs and limitations. And so it's as if he's saying, you're the teacher, I'm the student. You're the creator, I'm the created. You're the father, I'm the child. You're God, I'll worship and serve you. You lead God, I'll wait. How does God lead us? This psalm answers the better question of whom does God lead? And he, number one, he leads those who are persuaded of his character. Number two, he leads those who rightly perceive their own need. And this psalm is going to bounce back and forth between those two. Between declaring God's character and declaring his own need and how that puts him in a position to be led and guided throughout his life by a faithful God. Right? So first of all, God leads one who is persuaded of his character. Think about this. When you have respect for someone who's teaching, you immediately become a better student. Is that not true? If you're in the classroom or if you're in a workplace and there's somebody who you know is an expert in your field or who has accomplished a whole lot in your line of work and they're teaching a class or they're teaching a seminar and so you respect that person, right? You know that they're an expert in what you're learning. Immediately, you become a better student because you respect the one that's teaching. 
his or her reputation and your respect changes your posture, right? And that's what's going on here. He is so desirous of God to lead him because he knows who God is. He's persuaded of his character. Verse three, God is faithful, right? He says, indeed, none who wait for you will be put to shame. God is savior, verse five, right? You are the God of my salvation. Verse six, God's merciful and loving, He says, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. God doesn't need to be reminded of his own mercy and love. The psalmist is expressing his confidence that God's love is not changing like ours does. That God's love is based on his covenant promises to his people. Verse 8, he says, God is good and upright. Verse 10, he's All of his paths are loving and faithful. Verse 11, he cries out to him for forgiveness. Verse 16, he's gracious. Turn to me and be gracious, O God. He is convinced of God's character. That is the first reason he can pray to him, O Lord, I lift my soul to you. O God, in you I trust. Like I said, I don't really believe that many of us think that we've got things under control, but the reason we don't turn to him over and over again is because either we don't know, we haven't heard, or we've forgotten just how trustworthy and faithful he really is. And so the scriptures, this one included, beckons us to trust him because they reveal to us that he is in fact trustworthy and that he is powerful. If somebody says to you, right, trust me, I've got this. Whatever it is, trust me, I can do this. Will you immediately evaluate that claim based on two things? One, can they? Do they actually have the ability? And two, will they get distracted? Will they actually follow through? Will they change their mind? Right? So if somebody says, I, I've got this, don't worry, trust me, immediately you're going, well, can they actually do what they're claiming to do? And two, are they trustworthy? Will they actually follow up? And the scriptures teach us in regards to God, yes and yes. Yes, he has the ability to lead and guide and sustain us. And two, He's not going to change his mind. He always follows through with his promises. So when he promises to be steadfast in his love and faithful to his people, we know that he always will be. But the second reason he seeks God's guidance and trusts him to lead is because he rightly perceives his own need. He has an accurate view of both God and of himself. He says in verse 7, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. The sorrow that he's going through reminds him of his own sin, which drives him to God, puts him in a place of dependence upon God. And so he's not afraid to acknowledge or accept responsibility for his past. The biblical term for this is repentance. And so if, if we want God to lead us forward... If we want to know, God, what is your will for my life, right? It begins with humbly accepting our sinful condition to acknowledging 
our own limitations, our own weakness, our own rebellion, our own failure, our own rejection of him. If you want a clear path towards your future, if you want God to lead and guide, it begins here where he says, remember not the sins of my youth. Remember, we, a few years back, began a, a mentoring program for men who were looking for work. And every man given a mentor, every man given the same opportunity, every man given interviews for jobs. And there was one thing that was common in those who were stuck. It was an unwillingness to take responsibility for things in the past and pointing the finger at other people, pointing the blame at what others had done. It's clear that the one that, God's, that God leads is one who accepts responsibility for his own sin and comes humbly to the Lord. He says in verse 8, he instructs sinners in the way. Verse 9, he leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. Verse 11, he's, he's asking for forgiveness. Pardon my guilt for it is great. Verse 12, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way. 16, he cries out for his grace because he's lonely and afflicted. 18, he says, consider my affliction, my trouble, forgive my sins, right? The one whom God guides is repentant, humble, obedient, God-fearing. Because he knows his own need, he understands that his role in this relationship is to wait upon the Lord. And so we see in this passage that that waiting is not a passive thing. When I tell my kids, hang on, don't go outside, wait right there, I mean don't do anything. Like literally, just sit right there, don't move. When the scripture says, I wait, it doesn't mean do nothing. Waiting that's described here in this passage and in other Psalms implies obedience as I wait. Prayerfulness as I wait. A sense of hope, an eager expectation that God is going to do something in the future that I can trust him. That's what biblical waiting looks like. And so we may say, okay, I'm waiting, but how do I know what he wants me to do? How do I know his will? It's as if sometimes we've got a flashlight pointed down a dark road and we're going, I'm just trying to see God. Give me a sign. Show me what path should I take? What's the next step? And what this passage does is it flips that flashlight around and says, the best question is not what's next, God. The best question is what's in here? Not what do you want me to do, but who do you want me to be? The million dollar question we all want is, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do about this situation? What do you want me to do about that situation, about this relationship, that decision? What do you want me to do, God? And what this psalm teaches us is the better question is, who do you want me to be, Lord? That's where we're led through this prayer. It gives us promise after promise that those who love him will be just fine. 
that there's a certain type of person who can receive God's direction, right? Think about these promises that are here. Verse three, the one who waits for him will not be put to shame. This gives us promise after promise that we can bank on God's character. Verse eight, he instructs sinners in the way. The quickest way to avoid God's guidance is to think that you're righteous and don't need him. But those who know that they're sinful, it says he instructs them in the way. Verse nine, he leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. Look at the promise in verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. For who? For those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Verse 12, who's the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. Do you see that pattern? Promise after promise. That God will will lead the sinner. God will instruct the humble. God will guide those who fear him. He's crying out for God's guidance and leading and direction. And he's saying God will be faithful to lead the one who understands rightly his need for God. Humility, obedience, reverence, repentance. This is similar to when Jesus says in in Mark chapter 2, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. He says, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. When Jesus says that, he's not saying that there are people who are righteous and there are people who are sinful. No, he's saying there are people who think they're righteous and there are people who know the truth that they're sinners. And so he says, I've come to call that group the one who know that they need me. If you want God's direction, if you want God's will, right, the best question to ask is, God, who do you want me to be? The hard truth is we come up short, though, don't we? Of being that man, of being that woman. We're not always very good at what's described here of humility and repentance and reverence for God. We come up short, which is why we need Jesus, which is why we're so grateful for a true and better king even greater than David. The only way we can pray, verse six and seven, remember your mercy, remember not the sins of my youth, is because of the forgiveness that we receive that's applied to us through the sacrifice of Christ, which represents the pinnacle of God's mercy and forgiveness because of what our Savior did. When we think of all the affliction that he endured, and the stress that he went through, and the trouble, and the affliction, and the sorrow, right? First Peter 2 tells us that when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. That when he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did Jesus do in the midst of it? He continued to entrust himself, it says, to him who judges justly. He perfectly fulfilled this prayer. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you, O God, I place my trust. As Christ endured the greatest suffering and the greatest affliction, he righteously fulfilled this very psalm. To you, O God, I trust. In the face of death and taking God's wrath upon himself on our behalf, he entrusted his entire life to his Father. 
I mean, when faced with crucifixion, he submitted to the Father's plan, not my will, but yours be done. Nailed to the cross, knowing that it wasn't man's plans that had prevailed, but that it was his Father's will, he cried out, into your hands I commit my spirit. Entrusting himself to the Father, he humbly and obediently walked this path. And so we get to verse 22 here, the very end. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. And King David, right, who wrote this psalm, makes a sudden shift there, where for the first 21 verses, his prayer is directed towards God helping himself. And all of a sudden, he looks out to his kingdom and says, God, redeem all of your people out of their troubles, not just me. And that's the same thing we need this morning, is a greater king, a better king than David, Jesus, our Savior, who redeemed his people, us, out of all of our troubles. And so we pray this psalm, we sing this psalm together, we get to verse 22, and we are so grateful Because yes, we understand that the one who receives God's guidance is one who is persuaded of his character, who perceives our own need, but ultimately we need a king, we need a savior who will cry out on our behalf, who will intercede for us, redeem them, O God, out of all their troubles. Because man, this thing's a mess. This thing's a mess. And we need him. To do that. So, yes, lift up your soul to God this morning. Yes, wait for Him with humility and with repentance. Wait for your God. And know that we have a Savior who redeems us out of our greatest troubles. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we rejoice together this morning. In the work of our Savior, your Son, Jesus. We are filled with gratitude for all that he did for us. The greatest picture of your steadfast love and faithfulness. So that we can cry out, remember not the sins of our youth. Because they've been placed on him and removed from us. And so may we be a people, God, who look to you to teach us and lead us and guide us because we know and believe that you are faithful. And so we pray together, redeem us, O God, out of all our troubles. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Amen.